God has sent David out into the wilderness. And we get this wilderness motif, this wilderness theme, show up time and time again in Scripture. What is wilderness? Well, wilderness is, of course, a place that is unfit for human habitation. It's wild. People don't live there, or at least don't live there comfortably. The idea of leaving civilization and going out into the wilderness is one that we find time and again, and and here we have it going on with David. Now, at the beginning of our story here, David has his wits, he has his skills, he has his reputation as a fighter and as a leader of fighting men. And of course, he has his anointing from God as the person who is designated to be Israel's king, but is not in that role yet. But now he has to take these things that he has to the wilderness, and he finds that his wits, his skills, his reputation as a fighter, and even his anointing are not enough to get him through what is a very dangerous time. Now, in your bulletin, it says that we're in chapters 23 and 24 of 1 Samuel. We're actually really looking at chapters 21 through 30 uh, because uh, we're, we're skipping over a few weeks in, in the series as we get ready next week to move into 2 Samuel. But I, I look at this, uh, this span of, of this last third of, of the book of 1 Samuel sort of as a, a play in, in three acts. It's uh, uh, the first act, uh, we might call it popular, where David is prepared for the wilderness and he's got a lot going for him. As I mentioned, he's got his wits, his skills, he's won this great victory over Goliath, and then he's harvested one, possibly 200 Philistine foreskins to uh, earn the hand of his wife, Michal, Saul's daughter. But... Of course, Saul has decided that David is a threat. Saul has driven David out. And so David runs off to Nob, just north of Jerusalem, a few miles north. And he, he goes to Ahimelech the priest. And what he gets from Ahimelech is, for one, he gets some food. But he also gets a weapon. And not just any weapon. He gets the sword of the great Goliath. Now, as we know, Goliath was this huge warrior, Goliath's sword was probably not the sort of thing that anybody but Goliath could wield. We know from the story of David and Goliath that David couldn't handle Saul's armor and, uh, and, and his weaponry, so he probably couldn't have really used Goliath's sword. The fact that David gets Goliath's sword really has more to do with symbolism than it does with the actual practical value of this weapon. It, it is a reminder to anybody who is around him that he is the champion who defeated the hated Philistine warrior. He is the one who took down the great Goliath. He is the one who demonstrated his might and that he demonstrated his faith that God would show himself mighty through him with this sword. And he also demonstrates that he's the kind of guy who can walk into the temple and ask the priest for this relic, this great uh, I mean, this is the kind of thing kids would go on field trips to see, right? And, and, and he takes this museum item and he says, no, I'm going to actually have this with me. Thank you very much. I'll also take the bread. So he gets his weapons. And then what we find in chapter 22 is not only does he get weapons, he also gets an army. Because he, he heads out to the cave of Adullam. His brothers and his father's household head down there with him and about 400 people. What kind of people does he get? 
people of noble character, people who have their act together, people who are skillful. No, that's not the kind of people who show up. All those who are in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him. And he became their leader. So once again, as we have seen in the past, like with Gideon who takes 300 morons to win a great battle here, David has 400 grumpy, discontented, sketchy people who have a habit of running out on their responsibilities, and now he gets to lead them. But he does have an army now. And he also gets a priest. We find out, of course, that because David went to Ahimelech the priest, Ahimelech got in trouble for helping David out. This guy named Doeg the Edomite was there hanging around, and he reported back to Saul that Ahimelech gave David this this, uh, this sword, Goliath's sword, and uh, Saul calls Ahimelech to him and, and says, what are you doing? And Ahimelech said, David came and he said I was, he was doing what you, what you told him to do. He said he was on a secret mission from the king. And, and Saul says, right, you believe that? No. Kills Ahimelech and 84 other priests, plus women and children. Only one escapes, his son Abiathar. Abiathar makes it to David, and now David has not only a weapon, and the symbolic value of that weapon, he has an army, and now he has a priest. And the importance of having a priest is twofold. Number one, having Abiathar the priest in, in his camp means that David has military intelligence. Because what we find in several occasions in the story is David says to Abiathar, look, I need to know if I make this move, if I attack this city, is it going to yield to me? I need to know... If, if, I, uh, if I go up to this battle, am I going to win or do I need to withdraw? But he also, of course, has not only the military intelligence that comes from this priestly discernment, he also has the presence of God's servant who is offering his guidance through it. There's a sense in which David has been given all of these, all of these tools to prepare him for this time in the wilderness. And that's Act 1. Act 2, maybe we can call that no good deed goes unpunished. David finds himself in the wilderness. And it's in this, pa- in this portion of the story, chapters 23 through 26, that David earns a reputation not just as a military, fi- not just as a fighter or a military leader, but as a leader, leader, as a leader of people, as the kind of person who can come through on the things that he's promised, who can take care of the people he's responsible for. We, we see at the beginning of chapter 23, and here, there's an example. David says, hey, look, the Philistines are fighting against Calah, the city of Calah, and they are looting the threshing floor. So he inquired of Yahweh. He went to the priest and asked him, shall I go and attack these Philistines? And Yahweh answered him, yes, go and attack the Philistines and save Calah. Now, David's men are like, "Um, I don't know that that's such a good idea. Um, we're in trouble here in Judah, where we have some friends. Now you want us to go someplace where we have no friends and go up against this big uh, army of people who hate us. And David says, well, let me just double check. He checks with, you know, God, you, you sure this is good? Yes, just go do it. So he does. He goes, he, he defeats the Philistines, inflicts heavy losses on them, saves the people of this town of Calah. So... Good, right? He, he defeats, he, with, with God's guidance, he, he defeats 
the enemy, the enemy Philistines, saves this town, and then you'd think, well, great, the town's going to be really grateful to him, right? Not exactly. No, Saul catches wind of this. Saul finds out where David is. And, and David says, the pre- you know, I wonder, if, if I were, um, just say hypothetically, if we were to hang out here in Calah, and if Saul were to come here looking for me, would the people that we just liberated from the Philistines, would they give me up to Saul? Yes, they would. All right, he's got to get out of there. So he does, and he's running, running, running. Verse, verses 13 to 18, he, his, his men are running wherever they, wherever they could go. We find that at one point he is on one side of a hill and Saul is on the other side of the hill and it seems like he's about to get caught and then Saul finds out that the Philistines are attacking somewhere else and he has to break off and go back and get them. But, but if, 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 you're looking, if you're imagining this as a movie, things are, are at a point of, of, of real danger for our hero. And then, then comes one of my favorite stories in Scripture in chapter 24. And one of the reasons it's one of my favorite stories in Scripture is because it's proof that God loves 11-year-old boys. Right? It's also one of my favorite stories because in many ways, I never really did mature past that point. Uh, and that is what your picture on your bulletin is related to. This is the place where David is in a cave, and Saul, who is trying to find David and trying to kill him, Saul ends up going into this cave where David and his guys are hiding to relieve himself. Right? And every middle school boy is like, this is awesome. Because it is. So Saul, and, and, and David's guys are like, you got him? You got him dead? He's, he, he can't fight back right now. He's a little distracted. And, and what does David do? He steals the roll of toilet paper. No. It, that would have been pretty funny. He actually, he cuts off a corner of Saul's cloak. Saul doesn't know this is going on. Cuts off a corner of his cloak. And when Saul has left the cave, and he's a good ways away, David comes out and waves to, hey, Saul. Hey, remember me, David, the guy you're trying to kill? Look what I got. I could have killed you. But instead, I just chopped off the corner of your cloak. I could have killed you. Because people were telling me, the Lord has delivered your enemy into your hands, but I am not going to raise a hand against the Lord's anointed. So Saul does this thing that Saul keeps doing where he repents of what he was doing. He's sorry and he feels bad and then He'll change his mind later. Then the next story we get in chapter 25 is with David and Nabal and Abigail. Nabal is a word that means jerk. And this guy named Nabal lives out to his name. David and his guys in the wilderness are trying to figure out a way to to scrape together some sort of uh, way of surviving. And they're basically providing protection for the local shepherds. They're out there trying to make sure that they don't get harassed by marauding bands and other Philistines and so they protect these shepherds and then the shearing time comes Nabal is the guy who owns all these sheep and he's got all these shepherds working for him and shearing time comes and usually the deal is that that's not just a time where you you know cut hair off of sheep but you this is a a big party this is a time when you feast you might find some sheep that get more than just their hairs cut and David says hey you know I got these guys with me and we've been providing protection to your shepherds all this time. We, not only have we not plundered any of your flock, we've actually helped to protect them. So maybe this would be a good time for you to you know, hook us up. And Nabal says, forget it. 
no way, no how, not going to do it. Get out of here. Now David, of course, is furious. I mean, not only is David furious because I think he probably was kind of thinking lamb chops for dinner, but, but David is furious because he's got these guys that he's got to take care of, and he reasonably thought he was going to be able to provide for them, and now this person is holding out. So David's getting ready to go and, and attack him. And Nabal's wife, Abigail, catches wind of this and says, okay, I need, to, I need to intervene. I need to straighten this out. So she basically rounds up a bunch of food, brings it, uh, presents it to, to David and says, you know, my husband, kind of a jerk, hence the name, and so let me, um, uh, let me make sure that you and your guys are taken care of because I see this all going down very badly uh, if, it, if it keeps on this path. So the bonus, by the way, is Nabal hears about this. He, he like, is basically depressed to death, and David ends up getting to marry Abigail. So if you find a woman that's married to somebody else that you find attractive, and her husband's a jerk, ask him for lamb. See how it goes down. Uh, but by this point, so David has demonstrated that he can liberate a town. He's demonstrated that, that uh, he, he is able to, to uh, uphold his integrity and not uh, striking God's anointed. He's also demonstrating that he can stand up for his guys and that he's good with the ladies. And finally, in the fourth scene in this act two, no good deed goes unpunished. We have again a place where David is sparing Saul's life. Here you have Saul encamped and David uh, sneaks into the camp and he, he steals the spear and the water jar that are right, basically right next to Saul's head. I mean, Saul's favorite cup and his spear, David grabs. Now, what, what other things could you do with that spear, for example? Like, you could put it in Saul and then that would sort of finish the story. But David says, no, I'm not going to do that. And again, he gets a safe distance away. He says, hey, Remember me? I seen this, you know, this recognize a spear, your little, you know, coffee mug. Um, I could have killed you, but I didn't, because I'm not going to raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. But nevertheless, Saul is continuing again, even though he says, "Oh, yes, I, you're right. I, what was I thinking?" He still is breathing murderous threats against him. And so then we get to Act 3, we'll call it Defying Gravity, chapters 27 to 23, where God starts to bear some fruit through David's time in the wilderness. We find that David is able to escape from some situations that could have gotten real awkward real fast. It starts out very positively in chapter 27, David and his guys end up in the city of Ziklag, they're in Gath, the King Achish says, all right, you guys are impressive. I'm going to let you have Ziklag. That'll be your, your town. That'll be your home base. And you can basically go on raids from there. And Ziklag is thinking, great. From there, he's going to go on raids against my enemies, the, uh, the Judeans. Uh, actually, David goes and goes on raids against a bunch of other people, doesn't go on raids against his own people, but he lets the king think that he's fighting the people he hates. And they're there for like 16 months. They end up uh, uh, marrying, having children. They get settled in pretty well. Now, meanwhile, in chapter 8, Saul does something that really, really, really should not have been done. Saul goes and consults the witch of Endor. Hence the titles of our acts. 
He goes to the witch of Endor, which of course Saul has, has declared that nobody should be doing any of this divination sorcery stuff consistent with what is prescribed in Torah. But, but Saul is trying to figure out what, what he's got to do to, to get rid of David. And so he goes and he consults this medium and, and, and that does not go. He basically brings uh, Samuel's ghost back from the dead and Samuel says, what the heck are you thinking? And then meanwhile... While David is thinking that because he's thrown in with Achish, with this Philistine from Gath, that he's going to have to actually go and fight with them when they go to battle against Saul and the Judeans, he, sure enough, he finds out everybody's lining up for battle, and then they're like, wait a minute, the Philistines are like, this is, da- this is David, he's the guy who killed Goliath, he's the guy that they sing the song about where Saul killed thousands and David killed ten thousands, what's he doing on our side, how, how, what, what makes you think he's not going to switch sides and fight for the Judeans? That's his people. What? And 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 Achish says, "No, okay, fine, David, you don't you don't have to fight. You're excused." So David and his men are dismissed from having to fight against their own people. And again, he's smelling like a rose to the king, but then not so much to the families because they get back to Ziklag and they find out that the place has been plundered. It's been raided and everybody's been carted off. David chases after the, uh, the bandits. He goes and he saves all the people, saves the women and children, gets back all their loot, kills a bunch of people. And we're set up at this point, at the end of Act 3, for David to get back to a situation that's a little bit more normal, a little bit more reasonable. Except there's one more scene in Act 3. Chapter 31, David's enemy dies. Saul dies in battle. And again, David comes out smelling like a rose because David's not the one who killed him. Saul dies at somebody else's hand. But David's way is cleared So what we see in the story is that God has brought David through his wilderness experience. He prepared him for the wilderness. He brought him through the wilderness. He's borne fruit through his time in the wilderness. But we have to remember with all of this that the wilderness really by definition is not a place where you stay. I mean, that's why it's so weird that we have the story of the Israelites roaming around the wilderness for 40 years before they entered the land. I mean, you know, you you can be in the wilderness for a little while, but if you're in the, desert, the wilderness for 40 years, you're one of those weird people in a cabin off the grid, like writing you know, big long screeds uh, in, in, in small type on both sides of the same piece of paper and photocopying weird articles from strange websites. If you're off the wilderness for a long time, unless you're like shooting a, a show for the Discovery Channel, it, that, doesn't, that doesn't speak well of, of your sanity. Now, the wilderness is a place that you can go to temporarily. It's a place you go through. And we see this with Jesus. Jesus often would go off, we read in the Gospels, to a lonely place to pray. Jesus would go off to a place that was away from civilization, away from distractions, away from comforts. And he would go off and then he would meet God there, but he also then came back. In some ways, we see some parallels in Jesus' life to this 
passage of David through the wilderness. Jesus, too, gets prepared for his time in the wilderness with his baptism and in the wilderness. He is tempted. He goes through the challenges of his time there, and then God bears fruit through that in Jesus' interactions. Although unlike David, where David ends up skating out of some difficult situations, Jesus ends up stepping right into them, left, right, and center. But with Jesus, we ourselves may find ourselves going into wilderness times voluntarily for retreats simply as a discipline. Sometimes we are put through times where we feel like we're in the wilderness. The great spiritual masters often spoke of the dark night of the soul, the experience of God's absence, inexplicable, but people would go through that. Sometimes we find ourselves just struggling to hang on by our fingernails. But what we see in all of these, we see in David's story, we see demonstrated in Jesus' life, and we know in our experiences that when we go through these wilderness experiences, God has always been preparing us for them in some way. We don't always see it until well after the fact, but He's prepared us and He sustains us through it. And then He will bear fruit. And again, we don't always see what it is. It doesn't always make sense to us. But that's not our responsibility. It's God's. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that as your followers, we would go where you lead us. We pray that when we are brought by you through times in the wilderness, that we would find refuge in you and in you alone. And we pray, Lord, that you would bear fruit through that experience that's in keeping with your glory. And that would always be to the welfare of your people, the growth of your kingdom. And all this we ask in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.